0: Good morning to each one. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. The book of John chapter 12. Last week, we turned to this portion and we simply took a, a brief look at verse 41, where John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him that's as far as we got. We then turn to Isaiah chapter 6 to explain what it was that Isaiah actually saw. When John records here in chapter 12, verse 41, that Isaiah saw God's glory, what is, what is he talking about? Well, He's referring, of course, to what we find in Isaiah chapter 6. What did Isaiah see? Isaiah saw the Lord. Sitting upon his throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. That's the first thing he saw. He also saw the seraphim, these angelic creatures, angelic beings, with six wings, with two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, with two they move about in the presence of the Lord. That's what he saw. What did he hear? Well, he heard these seraphim crying, calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is the Lord of the heavenly armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. But then Isaiah heard something else in response to that call, in response to that overwhelming proclamation of God's holiness, the very thresholds of the foundation of the temple shook. And Isaiah found himself in that indescribable scene. And then what did Isaiah, what did he say? You know, we know what he saw, we know what he heard. What was his response? What did he say? Boy, it's wonderful to be here. Woe is me, I am a dead man. I am undone. I am finished. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. I am a terrible sinner and my eyes have seen the king. And then what does Isaiah feel? One of those seraphim takes a burning coal from the altar and he touches Isaiah's lips and Isaiah is purged. He is cleansed of his sin. His sin is atoned for. What a wonderful vision. What a wonderful description of the Lord God Almighty. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but once in a while I wake up early in the morning. I hate that. Can't get back to sleep. And yesterday was one of those mornings. So I made the coffee, a better thing to do when you're up at that time of the morning and with a mug of coffee went out into the backyard the sun coming up and just started to think about this uh this vision in Isaiah chapter 6 and began to meditate upon why why this is such an an important passage of scripture and why this is a this is a vision this is a a truth that that our generation so so desperately needs to hear, isn't it? Uh, so desperately needs to grasp how how our generation uh, desperately needs to see the Lord upon his throne. Uh, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. I began to re- rhyme off the reasons why. And I came up with a list as long as my arm, if not longer. I'm not going to share them all with you this morning. But I would like to highlight a few as to why Why this is so important and why why we have a tremendous responsibility as Christians to proclaim the excellencies of God, the one who has transferred us, translated us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son, and to declare God's holiness to our generation. The first is this Uh, We live we live in a day and age, we live in the midst of a generation that uh, accepts the irrational, accepts and revels in the irrational. And there are many indicators of this. Um, I could fill the whole sermon with examples. One caught my attention this past week. I I don't know a great deal about this, but I've been following it with some interest. Uh, The appointment of Sonia uh, Sotomayor, I think that's how you say her name, to the Supreme Court. And uh, this past week, the week before, there have been a number of interviews and exchanges, a number of senators getting involved, asking questions, making statements, all of that sort of thing. And it was something that was said by Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma. Part of Texas, isn't it Oklahoma? Or Oklahoma, for instance. I can get away with something like that not being from around here. Um, but it was a senator from Oklahoma and he, he made this comment to Sonia Sotomayor and it is, it is profound in its insight. He, he declared, uh, we now, we now record fetal heartbeats at 14 days. So two weeks after conception, you can hear uh, the fetus's heartbeat. We record fetal brain waves at 39 days post-conception. So from the moment of conception, six and a half weeks later, we can detect brain waves. And I don't expect you to answer this, but I do expect you to pay attention to it as you contemplate these big issues. We have this schizophrenic rule of the law where we have defined death as the absence of a heartbeat and brain waves, but we refuse, we refuse to define life as the presence of thee we revel in the irrational and how our generation how our de- our society so desperately needs a glimpse of the lord who sits upon his throne lofty and exalted the train of his robe filling the temple we live in the midst of a generation that celebrates the bazaar celebrates the bazaar a couple of weeks ago, Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson died. I'm not going to stand here and speak ill of the dead. I'm not going to stand here before you and badmouth uh, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson ha- has met his creator, his maker. And if anything, we should weep for Michael Jackson. But I will speak ill of a generation that worships Michael Jackson. Um, our hero. Reveal our values. What does that say of our society? Uh, what does it say of the ill health of the generation in which we find ourselves? Uh, friends, brothers, sisters, in the year that Michael Jackson died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled. The temple. How desperately we need to hear that. People who celebrate the bizarre. We are a generation that excuses the deviant. Before moving down here at the end of December, I was following a court case back in southern Ontario. It involved a young lady, a teenager, who had convinced her boyfriend to murder another young lady, another teenager, because she was jealous of this young lady. I followed the court trial with with some interest over the past few months, and uh, she was found guilty, of course, no two ways about it. And it was time for her sentencing this past week, and she was able to give a a few words before the judge, before the judge passed sentence upon her. And one thing in particular which she said gripped my attention. She, She declared, I promise I would never commit another offense. I believe treatment would help my disorder. I believe treatment would help my disorder. You see, we excuse the deviant. Homosexuality is natural. Pedophilia is biological. Drunkenness is a disease. Anger is a mismanaged feeling. Lust is an instinct. And murder is a disorder. Oh, how we need a glimpse of God's holiness. In the day and age in which we live, in which the deviant is excused. Now, we live in the midst of a generation that belittles the soul. Belittles the soul. I find this most interesting. In a society in which we 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 enjoy uh, trinkets and toys unlike any other generation before us, In a day and age in which we have more leisure time than in any other decade or century in the past, uh, we also suffer from far greater boredom than anyone who has ever gone before us. I am bored. That is the cry of our generation. Because we live in a generation that has minimized, belittled, trivialized the soul so we seek to find meaning and satisfaction in carnal pursuits. We pamper our flesh. We indulge the flesh. We entertain ourselves into spiritual obtuseness. And all the while denying and, and compartmentalizing and just ignoring the cries and the yearning of the soul. Oh, and how our neighbors, our generation needs to hear of the one who sits upon his throne. That there is indeed an infinite God, a God who surpasses comprehension, a God who is incomparable in his being, in his attributes, in his works. A God to to echo the seraphim who is holy, holy and holy, the Lord God of the heavenly hosts, the heavenly armies whose glory fills the earth. Those are just a few highlights. The list was as long as my arm. But what a challenge to us as believers, isn't it? When we speak to unbelievers, are we delivering the goods? Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, are we giving them what they really need to hear? Are we speaking of our great God and pointing them to the one who is the answer to their every problem, the one who alone can satisfy their every yearning and desire? Are we pointing to the one whose glory fills the heavens and the earth? That's what's been on my mind the past couple of days. I pray the Lord will take it and impress it upon our own hearts and, and, and compel us to declare his holiness to those around us. And not merely declare his holiness, but to be holy as he is. Holy. That's our calling as Christians. Christians. Our calling is to be holy as God is holy. Our calling is to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Our calling is to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Oh, may people see that in me. And may people see that in Grace Community Church. Well, that's the road we went down last week as we turned to Isaiah six to explain John twelve forty one. Today, we're going to return to John 12. We're going to look at verses 37 through 50. These verses mark a a, a real transition in John's gospel account. They mark the conclusion of John's account of Christ's public ministry. So follow along as I begin reading in verse 37. Though he, that is Christ, had done so many signs before them, that is the Jews, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, Isaiah 6, verse 10, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Now, in this conclusion, I submit to you that what John is seeking to do is is basically highlight four truths, four facts that as he's as he has as he has put on display Christ's public ministry going all the way back to chapter one, verse 19. All the way through to chapter 12, verse 36, there are certain themes, perhaps certain unanswered questions. And so what he seeks to do now as he summarizes it all, wraps it all up, so to speak, is is highlight these four truths, facts that he wants us to grasp. First is this. It's found in verses 37 and 38. They still did not believe in him. They, the Jews, did not believe in whom? In the Lord Jesus. We ask ourselves, why? How do we account for their unbelief? How do we account for the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ? John doesn't state it explicitly, but it is there implicit in his words. He touches on two reasons. The first is this, their sin. The first reason why they still do not believe in Christ was their own sin. Look at what he says at the outset of verse 37. Though he, Christ, had done so many signs before them in their very presence, they still did not believe in him. And so John has touched on seven signs. The first, that wedding in Cana, where the Lord Jesus turned the water into wine. The seventh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He has pointed at these seven signs, and these seven signs are but the tip of the iceberg. You think of an iceberg floating in the water. What you can see of an iceberg actually only represents 10% of the total iceberg. 90% 90% rests below the water. All John has given us is the tip of the iceberg. Seven examples of these signs. The very last verse in John's Gospel account in John chapter 21 is actually this. That if, if John had written down all of the signs, if John were to record all of the works performed by the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain them. Wow. Wow. Talk about the tip of an iceberg. All he's given us is seven signs. But these signs are sufficient to do what? To fulfill their design, which is what? That through the signs we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose of the signs. But the Jews still did not believe. It's not just that they don't believe. When the Lord Jesus heals the lame man in chapter 5, what do they want to do to him? They want to kill him. In chapter 9, when he heals the blind man, what do they want to do to the Lord Jesus? You'll see a theme developing here. They want to kill him. In chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, it's not merely, oh, we don't believe in you. What do they want to do to him? They want to... Kill him. How do we explain such fanaticism? How do we explain such antagonism? Well, John tells us, he answers very clearly in chapter 3, verse 19. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So the reason the Jews do not believe in the Lord Jesus Is because there is a natural antagonism toward the light. They want nothing to do with the light lest he expose their own sinfulness. And so there is this willful rejection of the Lord Jesus. This willful unbelief that although they have witnessed the signs with their eyes, although they have heard his claims with their ears, they refuse to believe. You see, it's just not the Jews. Everyone who has ever been born has fallen into exactly the same predicament, the same error, haven't they? Paul tells us, for example, in Romans chapter 1 that uh, God has revealed himself. He's made himself clearly evident. His his attributes and his eternal glory in creation. And yet Paul tells us in chapter 1 of the book of Romans that what? That professing to be wise... We have become fools. We have denied the signs. We have denied the obvious. We have rejected what stares us in the face, God's revelation, and what we can know about Him by simply looking at creation, nature. It's not just that. Paul goes on to tell us there in Romans chapter 1 that we've actually made three exchanges. First of all, we have exchanged the glory of God for an an idol. Worshipped and served the creature. And secondly, we've changed the truth of God for a lie. And thirdly, we have changed the order of God for immorality. And so our our denial, our willful denial of what God reveals concerning himself has progressively led to deeper and deeper sin. And this unwillingness to draw near to God, draw near to the light, lest the light expose what we really are. I've said it here before. And I have said here before that I've said it here before, that the issue, friends, is not evidence. I I really have to bite my tongue hard till it bleeds. Whenever I talk with someone who says, well, if God would just give me a sign. Oh, friend, the roof could fly off of here. The Lord Jesus could descend. He could heal a blind man. He could turn water into wine. He could raise someone from the dead. And you still would not believe because the issue is not the head. The issue is the heart. We will not believe what we don't want to believe. R.C. Sproul said it. Said it well, unlike anyone can. He who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Because the problem is the darkness of the heart. And an unwillingness to believe What stares us in the face, what is obvious and what has been made so clearly manifest. That's the first reason they still did not believe their own sin. But there's a second reason. As we move into verse 38, we find a very interesting phrase. So that that's a purpose clause. In other words, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why? Purpose clause. So that. The words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, we could be left, as we, as we make it to this juncture in John's gospel account, chapter 12, we could be left with a very perplexing question. You know, um, has Christ failed in his ministry? Sure looks like an absolute failure to me. He's been, he's been wandering that, that land for three years, preaching, performing miracles, performing these signs, and basically, generally speaking, the entire nation of Israel has rejected him. What a failure. What's God going to do now? Nothing could be further from the truth. The Jews' rejection of Christ, the fact that they still did not believe in him, there was a purpose, it is intentional, verse 38, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. You see, Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than, rather than undermining God's plan, rather than, than conflicting with God's plan, is actually the fulfillment of God's plan. Because it is through Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus that the Lord Jesus goes to the cross. And it is through Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Christ has pointed at both. Look back at verse 31, same chapter. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, He's going to be crucified. How will that be brought about? By the Jews' rejection of Him. And once He is lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. What is the context of those words? It is the Greeks, the Gentiles, who have come to Him saying, we wish to see Jesus. And so rather than looking at the Jews' rejection of Christ as a as abysmal failure, on the contrary, All of this was according to God's sovereign plans and purposes for the ages to sum up all things in the Lord Jesus. And what encouragement I derive from that. I derive encouragement from that as I see God's great plan as I go to something, a place like Romans chapter 11. And I learn of this great mystery that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And then once the fullness of the Gentiles come in, all Israel will be saved. We see God's hand upon the ages and the rise and fall of nations and all things falling into place according to his sovereign plans and purposes. I see it on a grand scale. Oh, and I see it in the apparent insignificant details of my own little life. God has his hand all over it. God has His hand all over Sean in Tanzania. He really does. He has His hand all over the Millers as they struggle with their, with their newborn. He has His hand all over the Woodalls as they plan to go halfway around the world to Russia. He has His hand, His fingerprints all over us. Every circumstance, every detail of life. Working them, shaping them according to his own sovereign purpose for us. That we might be conformed to the image and to the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first truth. The first truth that John highlights in these verses. The second truth is this. Moving into verses 39 through 41. They could not believe. That's the second one. First one, they still did not believe. The second one, they could not believe. Willful blindness. I'm saying this slowly so you can fill in the blanks, those of you who choose to do so. Willful blindness is followed by judicial blindness. There comes a time when a person who won't believe can't believe. God's judgment falls. And there is a judicial blindness on top of that willful act of blindness. John proves it here. In verse 37, they still did not believe. Willful blindness. Verse 39, they could not believe. A judicial blindness. For proof, he goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6. He quotes verse 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And so you think back of Isaiah, on Isaiah chapter 6. Last week we looked at the first seven verses, the vision. Isaiah has this great vision of the Lord. Following the vision, the Lord asks, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah puts his hand up. Send me. I'm willing to go. And So the Lord commissions Isaiah. He gives Isaiah his sermon notes. He gives him the message that he is to, de- to declare. The first thing I want us to notice about that message is this. It is a pronouncement of judgment. We read back there in Isaiah 6, keep on hearing. But do not understand. Keep on seeing. But do not perceive. And so you see the Jews of Isaiah's day. They had seen some wonderful things. They had seen, witnessed the Assyrian invasion. Many other signs, many other acts of God. They had heard some wonderful things. Think of the prophetic ministry of the likes of Isaiah and other prophets of that day and age. They had seen things with their eyes. They had heard things with their ears. But they willfully disobeyed. They willfully rejected. They did not believe. And so their willful blindness is followed by judicial blindness. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And the second thing I want us to notice about those verses back in Isaiah 6 is this. Isaiah's preaching, his message, is actually a means to an end. And so the Lord declares to Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and their blind, and blind their eyes. That, that is, that is, that is Sobering. It is extremely, extremely troubling. Do you understand what is happening there? Judgment has fallen upon the nation. The Lord has commissioned Isaiah to go and proclaim this judicial hardening. And he has actually appointed Isaiah's preaching as the means by which he will bring about this hardening. That's remarkable. You see, preaching is paradoxical, isn't it? On the one hand, preaching is is good news. And we we judge, we evaluate, we critique the, 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 the efficacy of preaching by the positive results. But at times, the success of preaching is actually determined by the negative results. Isaiah was sent to preach, not that the people would repent. Isaiah was sent to preach and say something that the people did not want to hear. And by hearing what they did not want to hear, they would harden their hearts further and their eyes would be darkened. Their ears would be stopped so that this judgment would fall upon them. And John latches on to that verse. He latches on to Isaiah six and he says, look, the fulfillment, the fulfillment of what Isaiah foretold and prophesied is upon us. It's happened. It's happened. That Lord Jesus has gone out just like Isaiah went out. And Christ's message has been something that this nation has not wanted to hear. They have willfully rejected Him. Now judicial blindness has fallen. And God has made it impossible for them to believe. This is a terrible message. And yet it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? you go all the way back to the land of Egypt and those ten plagues that befell the land and all of those signs performed in the midst of the people and all of those miracles that God performed in the wilderness. And as the nation is on the cusp of entering the promised land, Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 29, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, To all his servants, to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. You see, the history of the nation of Israel, the history of blind men running around. From the moment God redeems them from the land of Egypt, throughout those long years in the wilderness, into the promised land under the reign of Saul and David and Solomon, during the split of the kingdom into north and south, during those terrible invasions, the Assyrian invasion, followed by the Babylonian invasion and those unspeakable captivities in in distant foreign lands, Right through the restoration, right through the days of the Maccabees, up to the advent of the Son of God. Generation after generation had willfully rejected what had been so plainly revealed to them. And now the rejection is final as God's Son himself walks among them. And God's Son can declare, He who sees me has seen the Father. He who listens to me hears the Father. As he can make such claims and as he performs these signs, they confirm their rejection of God. And this judicial blindness falls. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. It's depressing stuff. It really is. We need to remember a couple of things. And it's difficult for us to get our minds around. but God is as glorified in the salvation of sinners as he is in their damnation. And even in this this judgment that falls, we see God's greatness. We behold His glory, the glory of His justice and His righteousness, rightly falling upon those who have rejected His Son. What a terrible warning this is to us. We We don't talk about this a lot in our generation. We just don't go down this road too often. But this is something that happens to individuals, folks. It is something that happens to societies. It is something that happens to nations. When exactly, I don't know. Why in some instances and not in others? I don't know. We enter into the realm of God's secret will. But this I do know. There comes a time when the person who won't believe can't believe. That, that, that should serve as a, as a stern warning, and, and I do pray I'm giving it in a spirit of love, because that is the spirit in which is, it is intended. And, and yet I want, I want to be most serious about this most serious subject, that if you're here this morning, friend, you need to take stock. If you're not a Christian, you really need to take stock. You need to consider the fact that you have been raised, I won't say in a God-fearing nation, but I will certainly say in a nation that at least has some Christian heritage and culture. You've been raised in a society where there is a church on just about every corner. You can turn on the radio and hear the gospel whenever you like. You can buy thousands, if not tens of thousands of different books that will explain the way of salvation. There is such exposure to the gospel in this society, especially here in the South. My friend, you may even couple your guilt by the fact that perhaps you've been raised in a Christian home. So willingly or unwilling, you've been dragged to church all your life. You've sat through Sunday school, you've memorized verses, you've gone to VBSs and such like, and you've done this and you've done that and you've heard it and you've heard it and you've heard it. Friend, God is not mocked. He is not mocked. We cannot sin with impunity. There is a day when willful rejection, willful blindness gives way to judicial blindness. God spare you from that. And if you sit here this morning, having heard that and your attitude is, Ho hum. God have mercy on your soul. That there is a day of reckoning friend. There is a day in which we will give an account of all that God has given us. By way of his revelation. By way of clear signs as expressed in his word. Know what peril. What eternal peril we face. We follow the example of the nation of Israel. The Jews who hardened their hearts when Christ called and arrived at this juncture where judgment fell. And John can quote from Isaiah and say it and hear these terrible words. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would Heal them. That's the second truth. that John highlights in his conclusion here. There's a third truth. We made it through the first. They still did not believe in him. Made it through the second. They could not believe. And now the third. Verses 42 and 43. Many even of the authorities. Believed in him. That's a fascinating statement. Right there. Verse 42. I just quoted it. Nevertheless. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. It doesn't stop there, though, does it? But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. It doesn't even stop there, does it? Verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That begs a question. Is this real faith? Is this this genuine faith? Are these authorities simply carnal Christians who are going to lose out on their reward but still somehow make it through the back door into heaven? Turn back to a couple of passages with me. The first is in John chapter 2. These are most illuminating. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Here John writes, Now when he, that is Christ, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Fantastic. Great revival, right? Look at verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now look at chapter 8, something very similar, equally as as puzzling. Chapter 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Great, here we go, it's going to snowball, there's going to be a tremendous revival and a great church planted. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And just a few verses down, what does he say? Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Is that puzzling or what? He's talking to the people who believe. You see, friends, there is such a thing as a false faith, isn't there? You go through John's Gospel account. There are eight or nine, if my reckoning is right, eight or nine instances in which we read that some of the people believed in him or many believed in him. It's the aorist tense in the Greek followed by the preposition N, in him. It does not necessarily convey true faith. When John wants to convey true faith, he uses the present participle, the idea of continuous belief, that they continue to believe in him. And what we have in these instances when John uses the aorist is the potential of faith that there is this acknowledgement of Christ and what he says. And there is a measure of mental assent to what Christ says or to what they see. So they see the signs. They hear his sermons and his claims. They believe, that is, they agree with him. They assent to what he is saying. But pay close attention to these words, friends. The mind may be convinced while the heart remains unconverted. The mind can be convinced while the heart remains unconverted. I think the Lord Jesus warns us of that very thing in Revelation 3.16. You are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. Three kinds of people. There are those who are hot. Those who are born again and love God. There are those who are cold. Who have outright rejected God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there are those who are Lukewarm, they have made a mental assent to God's word and to the claims of Christ. And yet it has fallen short of producing saving conversion in the soul. John Flavel writes in regards to Revelation 3.16, cold is the complexion of those who are wholly alienated from Christ. Hot is the temper of those who that know and love Jesus Christ in an excelling degree. Lukewarm or tepid is the temperature of those who have too much religion to be esteemed carnal and too little religion to be truly spiritual. It is a problem that plagues these Jewish authorities. They believe. They can't deny what the signs so clearly point to. They've heard Christ's claims, they agree, they assent to it. But it appears from what follows that there has been no transformation of the heart. Verse 43 seems to confirm it. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's a, it's a real danger, isn't it? A real danger, confuse, confusing mental assent uh, for the gospel. Uh, The author of the epistle to the Hebrews states it it, in no uncertain terms, it's chapter 12, verse 14, uh, we must strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think he means that. We must strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's not legalism, friends. It's part of the gospel. You know, you know, because you've heard me say it so many times. I am, this church is, firm believers. What we stand for, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is all of grace, isn't it? And we bask in the radiance of God's grace And the fact that Christ has taken hold of us by the Holy Spirit, we have believed no merit in that faith, simply an instrument by which we've been brought into union with Christ. And because we've been made one with Christ, his righteousness is ours. Our sin has been reckoned to him. He has paid the penalty in full. That is the foundation of our hope, isn't it? That is the foundation of our every hope and expectation, all of grace Purely of grace. But the thing is this. When we are brought into union with Christ, it is not just that he becomes unto us righteousness or justification. He also becomes unto us. Sanctification. The two are inseparable. Justification is the foundation of our hope, the foundation of salvation. But sanctification is its most necessary fruit. That when I am made one with Christ, the Spirit taking hold of me, I taking hold of him by faith. Yes, Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. But also from that moment, Christ my King begins to work in my heart, transforming me. Implanting in me this desire to strive for holiness. You see, friends, that's more than just mental assent, isn't it? That is a transformation of the heart. I, I I worry. I worry sometimes. I worry because I because I see it in my own experience growing up. There is the danger of familiarity, for those of us raised in the in the church in Christian circles. Real danger of familiarity. Raised in a Christian home, raised going to church, it's all familiar. And it becomes a Christian culture. And people can grow up and assent to what they hear. And you know, I like the community and the people. I like the stability. I like the certainty. I like the familiarity. Love the music. lot going on for it. We dare not confuse that with a transformation of the heart. See, the question I must ask myself and the question we must all ask ourselves at some point is this. What do I love? That's the mark of saving faith. Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I love the Lord who is seated upon his throne, lofty and exalted? Is this what thrills my soul? Or do I simply agree with a set of propositional truths? I I agree with that. I assent to it. And then just carry on as I've always carried on. Oh, there's a severe warning here for us, isn't there, in these verses. Yes, many of the authorities believed in him. But they feared man more than God. Verse 42. And they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. Ooh, that's a bad sign, isn't it? That all is not well with the soul. All is not well with the heart. Now there's a fourth truth that John highlights, beginning in verse 44, right through to the end. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who... Sent me he's, been, he's. I don't know how many times the Lord Jesus has made that point really from chapter five right through here to chapter 12. You hear me you hear the father you see me you see the father why I and the father are one the father is in me I am in the father. And so to believe in me is to believe in the father. And so he says in verse 46 that coming from the father in his authority he has come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in that darkness, that moral darkness, intellectual darkness, that separation and alienation from God. But those who reject me dare not think they will escape judgment. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And again, he reiterates his authority as vested in his father's authority. Verse 49, that what he says is what he has heard from his father. His father has given him a commandment to declare. The commandment is this, believe in me. Verse 50, I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. Great truths in there. Truths which I I stressed way back when we started in John 6 and we've emphasized them throughout. Christ is life. He is life, eternal life, because he brings us into fellowship with God. This great God, this indescribable God, who is the sweetest love and finest beauty and deepest truth. Christ is life on the basis of his sacrifice at the cross where he was lifted up. My sin was reckoned to him and he bore that judgment in full. And Christ is life to those who believe in him. Saving faith, friend, is not merely acknowledging that God exists. Saving faith is not merely acknowledging the facts about Christ. Saving faith. Is not simply making a profession by raising your hand, filling in a card, saying a prayer, or walking the aisle. Saving faith is renouncing self. Philippians 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Saving faith is relying upon Christ. Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Saving faith is appropriating Christ, receiving Christ, eating His flesh, drinking his blood whereby he becomes one with us john 112 to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god lots of lots of lessons in those verses aren't there lots of points of application admonitions warnings great words of encouragement And the greatest, I suppose, is this. Christ's cry in verse 44. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Friend, are you a believer? Not a mere assenter. Not someone who has simply agreed with something perhaps you've heard your whole life. No, do you truly believe? Are you a disciple and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you delight in the holiness of the one who sits enthroned, lofty and exalted, the train of whose robe fills the temple?